Welcome to Writers Festival Radio. As always, we are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. I want to begin by acknowledging the invaluable support of the City of Ottawa, the Government of Ontario, the Government of Canada, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Canada Council for the Arts for doing so much to sustain Canadian culture and the literary arts through this difficult time. Please take a moment to rate and review Writers Festival Radio and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers, and we can't do it without you. In this episode, we'll get a taste of two remarkable historical novels that are rooted in the past, but speak to our current preoccupations and challenges. While this year of pandemic and social unrest feels unprecedented, we are not the first to live in interesting times. From Shakespeare's England in 1580 to Mexico in the 1960s, much of what we are facing echoes throughout history. Up first, Peter Schneider from the Canada Council's Public Lending Rights Commission hosts Maggie O'Farrell, winner of the Women's Prize for Fiction. Her latest, Hamnet and Judith, is a luminous portrait of a marriage, a shattering evocation of a family ravaged by grief and loss, and a hypnotic recreation of the story that inspired one of the greatest literary masterpieces of all time. Here's Maggie O'Farrell in conversation with Peter Schneider. Maggie, I'm going to start our conversation by asking you about a writer's curiosity. Now, you're a prolific writer. You've written novels. And your prior book in 2018, I Am, I Am, I Am, was a memoir. Can you tell me about a writer's curiosity and how you transitioned and pivoted to this work, which is historical and fiction again? Um, Well, you know, I've always felt that the memoir was a bit of a... It, I was a bit surprised actually when it started. Uh, <laughs> it started sort of asserting itself. I think um, I never really expected to write any nonfiction. Certainly, I never really expected to write a memoir. Um, you know, a long time ago, I was a journalist, so I was used to writing that kind of um, non, you know, sort of um, nonfiction writing. But I was certainly not used to writing about myself. So I was a bit. It, it sort of appeared a little bit from left field. Um, so I think that was more sort of atypical, really. And actually, when I returned to writing fiction, it was such a relief. God, it was such a joy and a relief to be able to make things up again. You know, the truth is hard. <laughs> it's really hard to stick to things that are true. And while I was writing the memoir, I kept um, almost being kind of pulled up short by my sort of novel writing habits. You know, I'd be sort of writing a scene and I would suddenly think to myself, you know, if I could just, I don't know, move this to the 18th century and then maybe bring it... <laughs> <laughs> bring in another couple of characters and I think I, God, I can't do that because I have to stick to the truth I think fiction is much easier it's much much easier for me anyway to make things up and um, have that kind of elasticity of um, fiction in a sense um, so I think I'm very much naturally a fiction writer and I think the memoir was a an aberration <laughs> I think I'm gonna say but I do think I do think curiosity is probably I don't know second only to obsessive reading I think it's the probably the most important thing if you want to be a writer you have to be insatiably curious about the world around you and about the people around you and what makes them tick what goes on inside their mind how their relationships between them all work um 
I used to have up pinned on my desk actually a quote from the writer Graham Swift and he said that curiosity weds us to the world and I've always loved that sentiment. As we enter the world of this novel, one of the things that becomes beautifully apparent is that this was really a time that was pre-modern and Shakespeare of course is a giant in our collective imagination <laughs> and unconsciousness yep. and and at the same time the world in which he lived is only partially recorded so it allows you so much space as a novelist and yet it's tantalizing because it is the beginning of the modern world i mean in a way you know writing about shakespeare on on the one hand was um hugely intimidating <laughs> and there, you know i wanted to write this book for a really long time and there was i think that was one of the main reasons i kept putting it off um I think I've written three books actually now to date instead of as a kind of diversion from writing this one. I swerved away from it three times and wrote three other books. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I mean, for all his, you know, for his toweringly iconic status, you know, because we all have, we all have a relationship with Shakespeare inside our heads. And I think inside our heads, we all have a different Shakespeare in a way, you know, I mean, he pervades our very language, you know, his plays, I think at the time they were written, changed the way people thought about themselves. And I think they continue to do that astonishingly, you know, almost half a century later, you know, every new production, you might see something new and learn something new about yourself or about others. So, so there is <laughs> that, you know, it's just, and obviously, you know, taking him on as a novelist was, I mean, it, it, it gave me terrible vertigo. There were times when I just thought, what on earth am I doing? You know, how could anyone have the audacity, um, to you know put him in a book to write a book about him but on the other hand the thing about Shakespeare which is so one of the things about him which fascinates me is this very odd imbalance in him and our perception of him because on one hand we have this enormous sort of wealth of his, his work you know we have his enormous output and the plays I mean the only reason we have them is not down to him actually I mean he did write them to be fair but the only reason we have them today is because his friends and colleagues Hemond and Condell collected them after Shakespeare's death and, and put them together and made the first folio. And that's the only reason they've survived. He himself, Shakespeare himself, didn't show particularly, or apparently hasn't shown, didn't show any interest in his quite long retirement in printing copies of his work, unlike, say, Johnson and Marlowe, who, who made sure that they put out their, their collected work. Shakespeare didn't. But also, on the other hand, the, the strange imbalance about him is that we have this enormous output of his work. We feel like we know him so well through his plays and his poetry, or possibly we know him so well. But he's left a very, very scant account of himself in terms of sort of documents or a very scant paper trail. You know, we know so little about him. It's astonishing. There are such enormous gaps in his story. Nobody really knows, despite all the best and um, concentrated efforts of the best scholars and historians in the world, no one has been able to work out how this boy, who only had a grammar school education, possibly to the age of 15, um, became the world's greatest ever writer. Nobody understands how he made that transition from the Glover's son in Stratford, a small market town, to the stage in London. Nobody can work that out. You know, I mean, if you compare his father, say John Shakespeare, He's left quite a very detailed paper trail of himself. You know, he was high alderman in Stratford-upon-Avon. He held this very important civic role. He was a, a bit like equivalent of being the town mayor for a while. And he was a very successful businessman. He was a glover. And then he experiences this um, quite big fall from grace. He's no longer a high alderman. His business goes into 
financial difficulties. He starts illegally wool trading, trading in wool, um, and he gets fined for it. Um, and he gets caught, uh, held up before the courts. He's fined for all sorts of weird things, like not attending church because attending church was compulsory. Um, and for there's one document which says he's fined and he's summoned up in court because he's um, left a heap of ordure, what's described as ordure, in the street. <laughs> so you can just imagine what that might be. Um, so, you know, in contrast, William, his son, is very mysterious. We know very little about him. But for a novelist, it's a bit of a gift because, <laughs> you know, you can, you can fill those longers and those gaps and those voids with whatever you sort of feel, whatever your version of Shakespeare is, I suppose. One of the things that strikes me as a reader that I think is a genius stroke in the book is your decision to place the the center of of the book of the story at home and hearth and not on stage in London at the Globe Theatre. And in yeah. many ways, Shakespeare is a rather peripheral presence throughout. Yeah, the absolutely. I mean, he is. You know, I always wanted it to be that. I mean, there's. You know, there's so little known about his family and his family life back in Stratford. Um, you know, I mean, obviously there's a very good reason <laughs> as to why most of the biographies and the works of scholarship concentrate on his career in, on, his, on the stage in London. But it seems to me that his wife and his three children have always been kept in the shadows. Um, you know, and I think there's always been this whole sort of school of thought that he that he may have gone to London to get away from them or he hated his wife or he regretted marrying her and he went to London and that, and that was it. He sort of didn't come back, <laughs> which I don't think is true at all. You know, at the very end of his life, um, you know, he was an incredibly successful businessman and he was the equivalent of a multimillionaire. He could have done anything. He could have gone anywhere. He could have lived wherever he liked. Uh, but instead he chose to retire back in Stratford-upon-Avon and all his money. So the very, even at the very end of his career, when he was very successful, uh, he chose to live in really modest lodgings in East London, well, what, what's now East London. Um, you know, I mean, you know, it was the sort of lodgings that <laughs> maybe a student might have might have rented. And he sent all his money, almost every penny he earned, back to Stratford. And he invested in lots of property. He bought his wife and daughters an enormous mansion of a house uh, about a year after Hamlet died. He bought cottages, he bought fields, um, and he leased them to people. So it always begs the question for me whether... The people in Stratford at the time just saw him as a landlord. <laughs> you know, maybe they had no idea. But I think I wanted to, I don't know, it's always seemed to me that the biggest drama of Shakespeare's life happened off stage, and that was with the death of his son. And I wanted to give voice and significance and a narrative to that event. Well, central to, to the story is this incredibly strong persona of uh, a character named in your novel Agnes mm. and in the contemporary popular imagination if we think of Shakespeare's wife mm. we think of Anne Hathaway's cottage and cottage mm -hmm. gardens and something that seems very very cozy and yes. you, bring, you bring a power and a mystery to this woman and you imbue her with an incredible strength and a connection perhaps to folk ways or to other ways of knowing or being in the world that are not modern. Can you tell well, us? Well, I became, yeah, that? I mean, I, I became, she, she sort of slightly hijacked my attention in some ways because while I was researching the book, um, I mean, well, two things became clear to me. Firstly, that, you know, if we think we know little about Shakespeare, which we really do, we know even less about the woman we know, the woman who we're taught to call Anne Hathaway, um, 
despite the fact that for most of her life her surname was Shakespeare <laughs> and also <laughs> <laughs> I don't I, you know we are taught we've been taught this very very clear narrative about her um was that she I mean you know I think it comes from biographers it comes from historians it comes from scholars it comes from writers of screenplays famous films about Shakespeare have vilified her other novelists and it, it, there seems to be this huge sort of urge to give Shakespeare retrospective divorce to say that he didn't love her she tricked him into marriage she was an older peasant she was ignorant she was some people claim she was ugly they say she was an ugly homely wench you know there's only one portrait of her in existence and that was um, drawn possibly from an Elizabethan original 80 years after she died so in 1708 and actually she's very beautiful <laughs> if it is if it is a uh, a good likeness of her, which is, you know, we don't really know. She's very fine bone. In fact, she looks remarkably like Saoirse Ronan, the actress. <laughs> that same sort of slightly long, angular face. So, yes, uh, if that is her, in fact, then she's very far from homely. <laughs> but I feel, I don't know, that the narrative about her is so peculiar and so um, filled with hate and hostility towards her. And I think it has absolutely no basis in truth at all. I mean, people will always bring up the famous behest you know the second best bed in the will but what nobody really mentions is that that line if you actually look at the document of the will a photograph of the will it's an interlineation it, those words are squeezed in between two other lines and the will is a very very dry document in itself i mean yes there is an absence of affection for his wife in that behest but actually the whole thing is completely void of any kind of emotion you know you would never think that the man who has probably written the greatest love stories and sonnets about love um, had written that document. And he probably didn't. He was possibly dictating it. Who knows? And he was on his deathbed, for God's sake. You know? <laughs> Nobody is in, is in a very affectionate frame of mind, perhaps. And it's possible there is a, a theory that he died of typhoid, which is a particularly nasty way to die. I mean, you know, no, no way is good, but that's a particularly horrible one. Um, so, you know, I just, I just got really frustrated, you know, because I think she is... One biographer described her as the wife-shaped void, but for some reason, so many people have been wanting to fill that void with just opprobrium and actually just bare-faced misogyny. Everyone's determined that he hated her. When, you know, as I was saying, all this, you know, him coming back to Stratford when he retired, sending all his money to Stratford, none of that, none of that feeds into the idea that he regretted his marriage. And, you know, she's been criticised for being ignorant or being illiterate. I mean, it's probable that the daughter of a sheep farmer in the mid 16th century probably wasn't what we call now we would now call the literate i mean what what point would there have been to learn you know why would she who would have taught her to learn to read and what purpose would it have served for a woman of her background but you know being illiterate as we all know does not necessarily mean you are stupid you know and i i, I wanted to ask readers to try and forget everything they think they know about the woman who about mrs shakespeare and open themselves up to a new interpretation that perhaps they did love each other, perhaps their marriage was one, a partnership, perhaps there was an exchange of artistry going on, and perhaps she wasn't a literate, brilliant writer like he was, but perhaps she had an intelligence and an artistry all of her own. And the reason why I called her Agnes in the book is because when I was researching the book, I came across a photograph of her father's will. So her father, Richard Hathaway, died a year before um, she married William. And in it, he leaves her a very generous dowry. And he refers to her as my daughter, Agnes. 
um, which would have been pronounced in Elizabethan times as Annes or Agnes, a bit closer to the French. And so I was just absolutely, it was a kind of weird thunderbolt moment where I thought, my God, you know, on top of everything else, have we been calling her by the wrong name for almost half a century? And I wanted to give this name back to her because surely if anyone knows her real name, it would be her father. What's so compelling to me reading the book is the, the way in which you evoke the economic realities and the social uncertainties of, of the time for women and the tensions that arise between different generations of women in the same family and the, mm. this incredible character of the stepmother of, of Joan. Can you, mm. uh, you, know, add, you know, tell us a bit more about weaving that sort of fictional web uh, around uh, the character of Agnes and her children and the, the, the tensions in this extended family? Well, I think I had to make a decision at some point in the writing of the book, because obviously it was, it was a hugely politically unstable and uncertain time, um, the Elizabethan era. You know, we were coming to the end of Elizabeth I's reign, and that in itself, of course, had been a very fraught and difficult time, and the whole dissolution of the Catholic Church and then the Reformation, and, you know, it was this very, very tricky tricky time and you know there was all sorts of fears about succession you know who was going to who was going to be on the throne there was all this feeling of terrible instability I think and you can feel that in Shakespeare's plays you know there are so many of his plays that touch on the theme of who is going to who is going to assume power who is going to come next what happens when the old guard goes out and the new guard comes in it is a, a kind of ever-present tension in many of his dramas um, but I had to make a decision you know I think when you're writing a book you know, I never kind of, at any point did I think I'm going to sit down and write my historical capital H novel capital N. I tried to kind of uh, sort of shelve that idea and just approach it as I would any other novel. But I think what I was, I, there was a point at which I had to decide, you know, how much of the what's happening in the whole country would have impinged on the lives of these people living in rural Warwickshire. And I think the answer, I can, or the conclusion I came to was probably not much. <laughs> you know, I, think, I think those ripples would have been felt. And certainly there is, there is, the, there, is an, there are quite a number of allusions to the Reformation and um, Catholic recusants throughout the book. Uh, I read somewhere that there was a Catholic Bible found inside the wattle and daub of a house um, in Henley Street. So there are, and there are lots of theories about whether or not Shakespeare's family were secret Catholics and why there is no record of his marriage. So there's, there's, a, there's a record of um, William and Agnes or Anne um, becoming betrothed or saying the bands, but there is no record anywhere of um, their marriage and their wedding. And they, it's possible that it happened at a church in Temple Grafton, but nobody really knows. And, th and that raises a question and that some people, some scholars have theorised that actually it was conducted secretly. It was a secret Catholic wedding mass again like with Shakespeare there's no there's so many theories and <laughs> but actually quite there are sort of question marks but no absolute proof and no absolute answers so certainly that um is there throughout the book but I mean also you have to you know I think what surprised me you know, thinking about these buildings and these houses I mean you know because there's the the cottage which was now it's now called Anne Hathaway's cottage but in those days it was called Hewland's farm and it looks very it looked very different then from how it looks now, you know, if, if, I mean, most people have got some sense of what it looks like, even if you haven't been there, it's this such very beautiful, incredibly picturesque two-story cottage. 
in those days it would have been just what they call a hall so it would have been one room on one floor and it would have had a fire in the center of it with no chimney and there would have been a gap a single gap in the thatch to let the smoke out and all the generations all the animals dogs um, <laughs> any kind of lots of livestock in the winter would all have slept in one room and you think about the kind of the length of a woman's kind of reproductive life and they would have been having pregnancies and children if they survived at all uh, um, throughout that whole period. So you take sort of um, Shakespeare's mother, for example, Mary Arden or Mary Shakespeare. And by the time Shakespeare himself married at the age of 18, um, she had eight children living with her all the way from Shakespeare, who was the eldest surviving child. He had two, two sisters who'd um, predeceased him as children. And then there was another sister that died when she was seven. She was called Anne. Um, but she still had eight living children and the youngest was two. <laughs> so, you know, you have this enormous range of children, one of whom's getting married, the other one who's still a toddler, belly, I mean, probably still in nappies. Um, you know, and that's astonishing if you think. And then, of course, the wife comes into the house, Shakespeare's wife, and then she has children. And then you've got these three generations and intergenerations and in-laws all living in one house, all eating together, all running the house, preparing the food, looking after the children, and these massive generations. I mean, just <laughs> the idea that, and of course, you know, there is, um, I mean, it's certainly at Hewlands with the Hathaways, there is, there are some people who believe that Joan Hathaway was Agnes and Bartholomew's and Richard's, who's the next child down, their mother. There are others who believe there was a stepmother. There's no actual proof either way. There is a gap um, in ages between, I think, Richard and the next child, whose name has eluded me now. Um, so it's possible that there she was another, she, they came from another mother, or perhaps not. But I just had this idea that Agnes, as the oldest daughter, um, would have been in a kind of sort of maid slash child carer um, on a farm. I mean, there would have been so much to do on a huge, because the Hewlands farm was big, it was a sheep farm. They had many, much, much land. He, he was pretty successful. He was a yeoman, Richard. So he was, um, he was quite wealthy, but he would have been very busy. There would have been an awful lot to do all the time in just looking after the farm, making the food, just basically making sure that that huge number of children didn't run into a, a pond and drown or run into the road and get knocked over by a cart. Um, it would have been a constantly exhausting physical labour um, for the women of the house and for the men as well and um, out in the fields but yeah I just got the impression of this house filled with people of all generations possibly stepmothers possible in-laws and just an awful lot to do all the time I mean it's unimaginable you know it felt like an enormous bridge from my life as a woman in the 21st century to their lives um, in the 16th century and mm. here we are in 2020 confined to our houses we're no longer yeah. world travelers. The scale of things becomes so much more intimate and small. And there's yeah. such a resonance to read this story in 2020. Maggie, can you reflect on what it's been like to launch the novel and to be speaking about it and hearing from readers during this year, this extraordinary year? Well, it, ha it has been a strange experience. I mean, it would have been strange anyway, I think, launching or publishing a book in the middle of a pandemic. But um, Added to that is, of course, the novel is a <laughs> has there's there is a pandemic in the novel, you know, and it's sort of about a pandemic. That's it's the kind of engine behind the plot. Um, I mean, I should say that the it's not known what the real Hamlet Shakespeare died of. He died aged eleven. Um, 
um, and he was buried in August um, 1597, 1596, sorry. Um, and he, his, his burial is recorded, but there's no cause of death. So, so we don't know what he died of, but he did die in high summer and he died in a plague year. And something that's always really intrigued me about Shakespeare, among the many things that actually intrigues me, is um, that he never ever once mentions what we now call the Black Death or the plague with a capital P. Uh, he mentions plagues, you know, the plague on both your houses, and he mentions the pestilence, but he never ever reaches for the metaphor or the reference or the plot or the device of of the of the bubonic plague, which is extraordinary really when you consider how prevalent it was and how it would have been at the forefront of pretty much every single Elizabethan's mind all the time I mean it was you know of course there was no shortage of things that could have killed you in those days but the Black Death was a particularly virulent and horrible and um, constant threat for them all I mean Shakespeare himself his career would have been constantly interrupted by outbreaks of the plague in London and the very first thing that the civic authorities did in London as soon as there was a case or two of plague in the city was to shut down the playhouses. I mean if you think that the original Globe Theatre had a capacity of 3,000 people and they would all be gathering in midday because of course there was no, they had to use the natural daylight um, and if that was in high summer you know 3,000 people in the hot sun <laughs> in the middle of the day you can see why the cities viewed it as a kind of viral hotspot. So, you know, he would have been, it would have been constantly shut down. He would have, if, if the plague wasn't, the Brie outbreak wasn't too um, widespread, he would have had to go off on tour to keep the money rolling in. And he would have gone around um, counties around London, so Kent and Sussex. Um, he would have taken his, or Oxford. And then, but if it was quite widespread, he would have gone home to Stratford and gone into what we now call lockdown. Um, so if you think, you know, that it was so, so common and everybody would have known the signs, everybody would have known the symptoms, um, everybody would have known that it could fell a completely healthy young person in their 20s within 24 hours. It can, you could go from extremely healthy to dead in 24 hours. Um, it's odd and it's always raised a question for me as to why he never, ever mentioned it. When you think about the enormous range of all his metaphors, he never mentions it once. And that, it's always... It's always um, been a question for me as to maybe he didn't mention it because it was too painful. It was too close to him. You know, I, there's always it's always frustrated me um, when I read his biographies of Shakespeare back when I was a student that Hamlet the boy got maybe two mentions in these huge 500 page biographies. If he was lucky, they mentioned he was born, they mentioned he died. And his death was always wrapped up in statistics of infant mortality, you know, as if <laughs> the implication being that Shakespeare probably wouldn't have been that upset because you know children died all the time and and it always infuriated me because I think you know he was 11 how could he not have how could he not have been grieved and you, you only have to read the opening scenes of Hamlet to realize that this play is suffused with an enormous inexpressible grief. It, it's gorgeous and and what I really think is is beautiful is this this question this haunting question about grief as the impetus or the catalyst perhaps for great artistic achievement or or creation yeah i mean to me i i, I always it's always been intrigued me the link between this boy hamlet and the play hamlet you know I, I, for all that shakespeare is a very mysterious character um it 
you know, that act is not nothing. It's an enormously significant act. It's telling mm -hmm. us a huge amount, you know, to call your play and your, your main character. And also, you know, something that I think people often forget is that the ghost in Hamlet is also called Hamlet. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, the idea that there's this, it's about this father and this son and the father is dead and the son is alive and the son is desperate to see his father. He's desperate to be haunted by him in a kind of visual form, because of course he's haunted by him psychologically. And there is a story which is perhaps apocryphal that Shakespeare himself took the role of Hamlet the ghost in the very first production of Hamlet at the Globe. Um, and that in itself is fascinating and also heartbreaking. You know, the idea that he is playing the ghost that wants to appear to this boy. And there's, there's an odd reversal of course going on there. You know, and I think unless Hamlet, without Hamlet's death, we wouldn't have Hamlet to play and we probably wouldn't have Twelfth Night, you know, because of course Twelfth Night is about a boy and girl twins who are separated and they each think the other is dead and then they are magically reunited. And that was written after Hamlet, that's believed to be written after Hamlet. And I saw something, um, uh, I saw a, a playbill for the first ever production of Twelfth Night and the opening night was what would have been the twins' birthday. And that just broke my heart when I saw that because that again felt like a sign uh, right back from the past that, you know, because obviously Shakespeare was one of the leading members of that company of the Chamberlain's Men. And of course he would have been able to choose the opening night, the date of the opening night. And the fact that he must have chosen the birthday of his boy and girl twins, one of whom had been dead at this point for I think six or seven years. It's just heartbreaking. I, I think it's actually quite magnificent and what you've done with this novel is set the stage for a reader to approach Hamlet, which is, you know, a major work of, of, of world literature <laughs> with fresh eyes and with an open heart and to really perhaps perceive it in a different way that had, had not been considered before. Well, I hope so. That's very nice of you to say. I mean, I think the the sort of um, the engine the engine for me for writing the book was that I've always felt I've always had this. You know, I first heard about the existence of Hamlet when I was I was quite young. I was sixteen and I was at school and I was studying the play. And I had this absolutely brilliant teacher called Mr. Henderson. And he, um, you know, I don't think I would have written any books actually without his the sort of foundation stone of his teaching, certainly wouldn't have written this one. <laughs> but he just mentioned in passing one day when we were studying the play that Shakespeare had had a son called Hamlet. And I was really struck by it. And I've always been very surprised actually ever since then about how little Hamlet the boy is known. You know, he's mentioned briefly in Ulysses in passing, but actually he's very, um, the sort of awareness of him is very low. <laughs> and I think I've always felt, uh, sad on his behalf you know there's even there's no there's actually no memorial or no gravestone for him anywhere in Stratford uh, I mean we know he's buried in the churchyard there but there's no headstone there's no nothing to mark his grave I just felt always that he'd been and I looked all over I walked around the whole churchyard thinking there must be something <laughs> please let there be something but there's nothing and I've always felt he's very he's been very underplayed nobody's ever really given him his due no one's ever I just want to say to people, you know, without this child, without this boy who died, we wouldn't have this play. You know, it just, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been written. Um, and, you know, 11 is such an intriguing age. I remember watching my own son when he was 11 and it really is. It's the kind of, 
it's the sort of high watermark of childhood. It's the final sort of days of being a child, because after that you start sort of tipping into adolescence. And it is a very, very specific, specific sort of developmental stage, 11. And I just started imagining this boy. Um, and that's, that's why I wanted to write the novel, actually, to give him a presence and to, a voice and to say, you know, he was, he was important. He should never be forgotten. Maggie, have you selected a passage from the book that you'd like to read for us? So this is right from the beginning where Hamlet is searching for help for his twin sister, Judith, who's been unwell. And he has come across his grandfather in the house. Don't stand there gulping, his grandfather hisses. Help me clear this up. Hamlet shuffles forward a step, then another. He is wary, his father's words circling in his mind. Stay away from your grandfather when he is in one of his black humours. Be sure to stand clear of him. Stay well back, do you hear? His father has said this to him on his last visit when they had been helping unload a cart from the tannery. John, his grandfather, had dropped a bundle of skins into the mud and in a sudden fit of temper had hurled a paring knife at the yard wall. His father had immediately pulled Hamlet back behind him out of the way, but John had barged past them into the house without a word. His father had taken Hamlet's face in both of his, fingers curled in at the nape of his neck, his gaze steady and searching. He'll not touch your sisters, but it's you I worry for, he had muttered, his brow puckering. You know the humour I mean, don't you? Hamlet had nodded, but wanted the moment to be prolonged for his father to keep holding his head like that. It gave him a sensation of lightness, of safety, of being entirely known and treasured. At the same time, he was aware of a curdling unease swelling about inside him like a meal his stomach didn't want. He thought of the snip and snap of words that punctured the air between his father and his grandfather, the way his father continually reached to loosen his collar when seated at the table with his parents. Swear to me, his father has said, as they stood in the yard, his voice hoarse. Swear it. I need to know you'll be safe when I'm not here to see to it. Hamlet believes he is keeping his word. He is well back. He's at the other side of the fireplace. His grandfather couldn't reach him here, even if he tried. His grandfather is draining a cup with one hand and shaking the drops off the paper with, it, with the other. Take this, he orders, holding out the page. Hamlet bends forward, not moving his feet, and takes it with the very tips of his fingers. His grandfather's eyes are slitted, watchful. His tongue pokes out of the side of his mouth. He sits in his chair, hunched, an old, sad toad on a stone. And this... His grandfather holds out another paper. Hamlet bends forward in the same way, keeping the necessary distance. He thinks of his father, how he would be proud of him, how he would be pleased. But quick as a fox, his grandfather makes a lunge. I haven't asked you up until now about Hamlet himself and about Judith, his sister. Mm. Um, these are children, and yet they're, they're very tenderly, yet very astutely observed. They're vivid presences. They're not cardboard characters. One of the things that really breaks my heart, actually, when I think about Shakespeare and his story and how much we know about him is that both his daughters, both Judith and Susanna, unlike their poor brother, lived a really long time. I mean, Susanna was in her late 60s when she died, and Judith was 72, which is wow. astonishing, actually, when you think about... Um, you know, the time that, I mean, I think the average age, a life expectancy was 48, 47, I think. So they lived an amazingly long time. And actually by that time, you know, they were living in Stratford, they were married, they had children, Susanna had a daughter. Um, 
Judith actually tragically had three sons, all of whom died. One died, he was called Shakespeare. Um, he died when he was a toddler and the other two died within a week of each other, again in high summer, um, when they were 20 and 21. Um, so, but they lived, you know, they were living in Stratford a very long time. Judith married a vintner, um, Susanna married a doctor. Um, and, but by the time that they were elderly, Shakespeare's um, reputation had had this huge, it was on, on the increase and his plays were being put on again and people were starting to write what we now call biographies, you know, accounts of his life. But what's really infuriating is that not one of those people thought to go to Stratford and ask his daughters, what was he like? You know, tell me about him. And you think about what has been lost by their failure to do that. How much we would know about him now, how much his story would have been filled in. It's, <laughs> it makes me cross when I think about it. You know, so I feel they, they have been so silenced these people who were so important in his life, you know, these are his children and his wife, and they've been totally consigned to this shadowy place where their stories aren't heard and their stories weren't elicited and their stories weren't listened to. I, I really just want to say again, just how refreshing and how imaginative the work is. We think we know Shakespeare, I think, because mm. we encounter him in school. Yeah. And there are so many books about Shakespeare and yet mm. you found something truly fresh and something I think really valuable in exploring this time period and, and his family in this way. Thank you so much. It's been so nice to chat. That was Peter Schneider in conversation with Maggie O'Farrell about her novel, Hamnet and Judith. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a donation to support our virtual programming as it may be a long while before we're able to gather again in person. Up next, author, screenwriter, and film and TV director J.F. Martell hosts a conversation with Sarah Zarrar Murphy, winner of the New Brunswick Book Award. Itzel is a two-part novel. Part one tells the story of three disparate characters swept up in the drama of the Mexican student movement of 1968. Broad in scope and exuberant in style, this book roots readers in the epulence of Mexico's daily life and language, even as we are made to confront the horrors of history and to examine the difficulties of friendship and family. Here's a short taste of the prose, followed by their conversation. Itzel was an Auschwitz survivor. That's how I'll always start, whether I'm in Oaxaca eating grasshoppers or in Cacaxtla drinking pulque, or just surveying one or the other city or even Puerto Escondido on Google Earth. That is how I will begin. Itzel was an Auschwitz survivor. Over and over. Thinking one day I'll do it, write that story, get it down, until it will once more make me go to Mexico to try to retrace our route, our many routes, and become a refrain. Itzel was an Auschwitz survivor, and yet not a single word will be written. Even if I've already let the fiction begin in my mind, already changed her name, even if I know it would have satisfied her, the real her, when I let her speak it, 
laugh at how it seems so strange that an Auschwitz survivor should bear the name of a Maya goddess. But of course, such a name would already have to appear strange to me, the me who'll be the author, because she was so very blonde. As I suppose the Auschwitz survivor part will too, almost evolving into the one of the New York jokes of my Brooklyn childhood, always a punchline for something funny. You don't look Jewish. Except that there's nothing funny about it. Which may be the reason now, in front of my keyboard with Google Earth and another window, I'll decide at last to write it this way that it can be written this way, as this impossible hybrid. Because I want you to know this. Everything I say here about the camps was said to me. That part was real. And so was she. This woman so very briefly my best friend. The first person to befriend me in Mexico, or whom I will befriend and betray so badly. I still think that, even if most might think from a superficial look at the circumstances that it was the other way around. So that a great deal more of all this is true too. Certainly the part of Mexico I'll be there for in the making of its history, even the exact minute of the green flare falling from the army helicopter to begin the massacre at 6.10 in the afternoon of October 2nd. 1968, when I will see each cell begin to run. True, as something of fiction always is, though you can work out what yourself in the storyline with its names changed to protect innocent or guilty, the details recombined mostly, only occasionally imagined, the way I'll often do in my head if not on the page, just to let me find the moral center of my tale. But the specifics the historical specifics, I will vouch for them. What struck me when I started reading your book was what we just heard there, the voice in it, the almost overpowering sense of truth-saying. And also another thing that struck me, this will be my first question, is the use of the future tense. So... This is one of those strange literary artifacts that present us with uh, a different understanding of time, perhaps. You've decided to write a book that is, I guess, as you just uh, read to us, partially a memoir, fictionalized, but nonetheless true in its historical details, uh, an act of witness of sorts, but you've de you decide to use the future tense, as though the fiction were something still on your horizon. Why did you make that stylistic decision? What is it, what is it telling us about the story? That particular way of writing is something that came to me as a want of a better way of putting it way back when, not immediately when I started writing, but at a certain point in my writing and what it has to do with, to me, is a sense of memory, that there's a way in which the future is a memory tense. It's the place where you're sort of sitting there doing that thing where you're talking to people, you know, or sort of the, the big one, 
So there I'll be and I'll be standing right there and I'll be looking that guy in the eye. You know what I'm saying? I mean, so it's that. It's that um, it, I will always remember it this way. And that's sort of a declaration that's right there in the first few lines of the book. So, yeah, that's that's where that's coming from. And it feels natural in the sense that what it allows for as opposed to a simple stylistic choice, is when I'm negotiating the territory of the book. Um, I can feel it happening in front of me, and it gives me a different way of being able to deal with the narrator's sense of being there and not being there at the same time. If that if that kind of makes sense. It's like it just, it gives me a, a universe of feeling that I, that allows me to write it when it comes down to. You're right. I get it. But one thing it does is that it makes the past that you're recounting feel immediate, present, almost as though we were watching it happen now, even though it's of the past. So it's a stylistic choice that has a real impact on how the fiction hits the reader, uh, which I found to be a, just a fascinating uh, way of doing it. Yeah, see, and for me, of course, what it does for me as the writer is it does exactly the same thing. It places me inside what I'm talking about. And what that does is it allows me to see it and to say it right. in a way that I wouldn't be able to do if I was doing it some other way. Yeah, that's how you finally... Uh, found the way to write this story because it's it was a story that was in the making for a long time wasn't it exactly it was it was I mean years and years and years and years and I talk about that more in volume two I actually go back through the fact that um it was probably the first short story when I exited the visual arts to be to start writing and therefore become a writer um it was the first short story that I it was the first story that I felt that I had to tell and it just didn't work. And I go into the fact that part of that was because I was trying to tell it cool, which was ridiculous. Uh, there's all sorts of various things for that. But part of it was was finding that was finding that voice and finding a way. And that's part of the interesting thing that has been done in two volumes, too. And there's all sorts of things around that choice. But it really has two halves, and it was a whole thing of finding a way to tell them both and also to be loyal to the um, history and politics of the time. Yeah. So, yeah, finding the voice was the big deal. It was like, you know, hey, okay, this can this can do it. I can do this thing. Yeah, know? yeah, and, and it is an incredibly complex book. I mean, I just kind of jotted down the various genres that I saw you playing with as I was reading <laughs> You know, fictionalized oh, memoir, uh, activist fiction, for lack of a better term, political thriller, history, philosophy, travel literature, and finally, surprisingly <laughs> to me in the end, romance. <laughs> it's a love story. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, so, so I can imagine how pulling off something on that scale that does justice to an event that I guess a lot of your readership won't be aware of what, what exactly happened on October 2nd, 1968, Mexico City. Um, that could not have been an easy undertaking. And I can understand how it took all that time to get there, even though uh, I'm still impressed that it, you've managed to pull it off at all. Um, it's, 
It's a book that does like it's it's a book that I found unique in that I found it informative and incredibly touching at the same time. Um and it does you know the old um feminist slogan um the personal is political, right? Um mm-hmm. there is a sense as I was reading this book I had the sense that you were really focusing on the lives of just a few characters, Itzel being one of the, the most important, and we'll get to her mm-hmm. in a second. But through them, we really got the, got the sense of big historical events. How did you balance these two aspects of the, of the project, like working on a story that works as a novel, as a work of art, but also a document that not only is reporting on an historical event, but becomes, by virtue of its very existence, becomes part of that event, becomes part of how it's it's unfolding, right? <laughs> My sort of automatic reply to that was with difficulty. Right? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, um, what I, what I mean by that is that the waiting, you know, it, waiting in the sense of W-E-I-G-H-T as opposed to waiting for, um, of how to move in and out. Some of it was really natural. And some of it, there were times when I'd have to say, no, I got to, you know, I got to cut this back. Or no, you know, I, I I would feel that I'd gone into a territory that didn't quite work. And I would have to, you know, pull something back out and move on in a different, in a different kind of way. There's two things I think going on there. And part of that is, the thing about the political, the personal is political. The opposite to that is that the political is also personal. And I think that in that way, Latin American literature is really exemplary in that kind of sense, because the politics, who and what you are politically is going to influence your daily life on a very real level. Right. But yeah, right. the the big one about how much to include that was re- that was really really big. And that somehow was dictated by the characters. It goes back to what I said about trying to tell it cool and feeling that was disloyal. And then, for example, I I thought for a while about, you know, should I even include the whole part that takes place, for example, in the United States that meant that the narrator and um Basta, her um, her boyfriend and to be husband, were in fact in New York on the day of the massacre, right. which is which is what in fact did happen did happen to me, and we weren't there because we'd accepted to do that talk at the New School for Social Research about the movement itself and changed our flights would have been there the day before the massacre, would have communicated with friends, would have gone to Tlatelolco. But that also at the time, you know, and right now, you know, if somebody asked me about that, it would be like, thank God, right? At the time, it was like feeling that we should have been there. What were we doing not being there? How could we have not been there? So that influences, in turn, all of the events that happen afterwards. Right, right. Is that feeling of not being there, right? That brings us to the actual contents of the book. Like, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to ask the uh, the question about how much of this is true, but how do you, how much do you identify with this book? 
personally? I identify very, I do identify very strongly with the book and with the narrator. Um, and I think it's, it's, it, it, it's always one of those interesting questions because one of the things that is, you know, sort of one of those simple, almost silly truths is that you can never write the whole truth because there isn't enough time in a life to do it, you know? So there's always that aspect of picking and choosing that otherwise you just, I mean, it's, 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 it's a spin. You just spin and spin and spin and spin within, well, you know, but there's always this and there's always that and there's always the other thing. Right. But my identification yeah, it's like there's a part of me that's seeing this and writing this and that I'm basically trying to be true to who I thought I was then within both the fiction and the nonfiction. So it is very much a fiction because you do that, or at least what I was doing was recombining things, in fact, to in some strange way simplify the way that things could move. It is important at the same time to me that the reader be aware of historical, that there is his loyalty to history, right? And to some sort of level of psychological fact, but not necessarily to every incident. It's trying to be loyal to the fact that people are like this, mm. that I am like this, that the other people involved are people that I can see and that I hope that my readers can see. Um, very, That's very much an important part in terms of historical fact. I think too, and I think I kind of not quite joke about this, but I do pull in and out to talk about it because Mexico in the literature of El Norte, as they would say there, meaning the United States and Canada, right? Um, it has a very special place because Mexico, in some ways, is one of those mysterious others that you can both stereotype and make up as you go along. So I do try to be both accurate to Mexico but a lot of my writing is what I would call counter-stereotypical. And I give examples mm -hmm. of that. And I do it on purpose. I mean, there's there's the moment in which Basta insists on going to the police over the fact that Clotilde, the, the, the older uh, woman who works in the uh, pension, has been assaulted by her husband. And he insisted on doing this. Um, and it was the woman who, uh, whose mother owned the pension and who, to some extent, ran it, who is a historically identifiable figure. But she insisted to Clotilde that you're never going to leave him. You're never going to do anything. That's not who you are. You know what? Why the hell are you bothering anybody with this? Why was she bothering Basta with this? And that happened. And, you know, I'm sitting there saying, you know, yeah, you're going to have people who say, oh, yeah, in Mexico, right, yeah, somebody did that, mm, nah, never happened. And yet, 
that's absolutely true. And I think that's when I do the thing where I turn to the to the reader and just say, you know, there are things that come into general consciousness. There's all the people in the shadows that made that happen. Right. And that guy was there. Right. right. So I right. actually do that. So all of that means that I have to come back to saying this is true every once in a while. Right. Right. This is a first-person account, in a sense. It comes from your own real experience, and there's no better way to destroy stereotypes than to actually live in reality. <laughs> exactly. But the problem is that if, if you're not doing strict nonfiction, people will say to you, well, you're just making that up because you want that to have happened, right? I mean, so... That's so funny. So you, you got to... Yeah. 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 Um, there are two key relationships in the book that I could see, at least the... The narrator's relationship with Basta, who ends up being her boyfriend and later on uh, her husband, and her relationship with the title character, the eponymous character, uh, Itzel. So um, I wanted to look at the, just the title is Itzel 1, so we know already that there's a second volume to this, which I have not yet read. Um, Itzel 1, Atlatidolco Awakening. So let's talk about Itzel, and then I'll ask you about Latelolco, because I think some people might not be aware of what happened there. Uh, but who was Itzel? Who is she in the novel? Well, who she is in the novel is the person who, in essence, makes the story happen. Um, and in that sense, she's central to it. We can talk later about the splitting of the novel, because she is literally the central character, I think, of this this first volume, and not a much more so of the second. Because what is important in what motivates this is her almost birth into a sense of agency. Mm-hmm. And she was, she is based on literally the first person who befriended me in Mexico, the first person whose friend I became. Um and that opening story about the the life the life class and the moving of the model, um, in which somebody to, to, to tell readers, in a very bullying gesture, walked up behind a life class model and simply moved her, and the comment that I made, which was, um, you know, you can do uh, more to a human being, but you can't do worse, and. There's a, there's a way in which that's true and there's a way in which it's absolutely not true. And one of the ways in which it's absolutely not true is that Itzel was an Auschwitz survivor. I mean, you know, and that's the way sort of that chapter ends, that there is a more that is automatically worse. But that there is, and then I think what I talk about is that the statement is true in terms of the world of the perpetrator, but not of the victim. And that incident both made me Itzel's friend and pushes forward the actual facts of the narration. Um, Because what had happened to Itzel, and this I did do, there is a reading up on my website of a portion of the book that I never thought could be read, but that read well within what I was doing, which is, what happened to her when she was transported to Auschwitz. Mm. And it's one of the reasons why, in fact, I make the statement that, you know, that what was said to me, you know, everything about the camps that I say was said to me, is that what happened to her was psychologically so awful that I would not take it upon myself to make up a story like that if it wasn't real. 
And that is that she had been brought up as an assimilated Jew in Hungary to identify with sort of Nazi fascism. Right. So that she believed that these people should be good people. Hmm. Right? And she asked her, I mean, and this I can give away from the book, she literally asked one of the guards what had happened to her parents and got told they'd been sent to the heaven bunker. They just said they, they were sent to bunker H. Yeah. And she later found out from other people that this was their big joke, right? Um, so that's that's what it is. What that did to her was it simply robbed her of any sense of agency in her own life. And what she said about the camps was that she simply followed her sister. And, of course, that gets into a philosophically important thing to me as somebody who has done a lot of work taking testimony from victims of torture. You know, what what doesn't kill you does not necessarily make you stronger. No. You can be pushed into a place where you simply exist. But what's interesting about this story is that Itzel does, in the end, become stronger. She does find a way, doesn't she, mm-hmm. of uh, restoring her own agency and of becoming involved in a sense of becoming the witness to the event uh, that's central to the novel. Yes, absolutely. And when she... Um, finds her agency, that was precisely the moment where I felt suddenly drawn into the political struggle of the, that the novel depicts. So in a sense, she, she and, you know, her backstory that she was, an, an, I guess, for lack of a better term, a sympathizer or someone who had been brought up in the in that in that fascistic view and then eventually becomes a victim of it and then has to realize, you know, what it all means, how she can take part in its in, in negating it and fighting it. I don't know. Her her journey kind of mirrored mine as a reader, which I thought was just brilliant. And I don't know if that's just me or if it's part of the design of the novel, but it certainly was effective for me. Good. That's all I have to say about that, because that would be exactly what I wanted. But I'm not sure that I would ever be able to say that. I knew it would work, if you know what I mean. In other words, what I was following out was how important this had been for me to see this. And despite all of the, you know, the other sort of the personal conflict, et cetera, around all of, you know, that is there in the novel as well, that, yeah, that it was just exceptionally important to see that. And the fact that it worked the way it worked for you is exactly what I wanted to have happen, but I wouldn't have guaranteed that it did. So that's really a good thing. Yes. Good. Good. That makes me happy. So can I ask you about Platiloco? Tell us what happened on October 2nd, 1968 in Mexico. Okay. Yes. Um, it's been interesting um, because, of course, these are the months. This would have been directly after that now. And I was back in Mexico for the anniversary, 50th anniversary of the massacre. Mexico went through, as did many places in 68, a very, very strong student movement 
that summer. And there's a couple of things involved with that that are important. One of them is that for people who don't know, Mexico was a one-party state, became a one-party state after the Mexican Revolution of 1910 and remains so. And there had, for, you know, Ah, uh, when did they go to their first election? Um, it was guaranteed that they would go to alternancia, that they would alternate parties after NAFTA in 94. Um, but there had been basically no very strong movements at that point for a Oh, 10 or 15 years. I could go exactly if I could get the data data on this. So the student movement came as a big surprise to everybody, including the students themselves. In other words, that this movement, there was such a tension, that unregarded tension in Mexico about political repression, that when the student movement started, and there's all sorts of rumors about the government actually kind of orchestrated it because they wanted the dissidents off the streets for the Olympics, which were to take place around now. They'd probably be, you know, this would probably be the anniversary of them. Um, right. So it built and it built and it built. And what that meant was that there were the, the biggest, the largest demonstration was probably a half a million people. And this is in 1968 into the Zócalo, into the central you know, part of Mexico City. Now, one of the truths is that, all depending on size, of course, um, because you have Tiananmen, right? But repressing a demonstration of 500,000 people or even 250,000 people is really difficult because what is likely to happen if you do it is you simply spread things and make them bigger. So, right. What happened slowly was as the time went to toward the Olympics, the government got crazier and antsier. And what they finally did was they decided to send the army into the schools of the university, which had been on strike. And there is a system in Latin America where the universities are autonomous. You are not allowed, basically, by law to send in um, law enforcement. They're, they're self enforcing places. Anyway, so they take the um, university fairly casually because nobody believed they were coming. And that's, of course, the story that takes place at Columbia University, where we were. Um, it takes literal street fighting to then take all of the other smaller schools and the National Polytechnic Institute. That takes about a week. There's all sorts of negotiating going on. At that point, Although they no longer have what you would call in Spanish el poder, poder de convocatoria, the ability to bring people together because everybody's been scattered, they called for a demonstration on the 2nd of October in this big housing development, which on top of it is the place where the final city of the Aztecs fell to Cortez. I mean, it's like this place that was a city that is just full of all sorts of historical meaning. Um, about 10,000 people gathered. The army surrounded it. The presidential guard had been put, they had it all orchestrated so that the presidential guard would start the shooting, which would make the regular army think the students were shooting and the regular army would start shooting and they simply shot at whoever happened to be there for over two hours. Now, in terms of numbers, the numbers have never been um, 
not counted is not the right way. Uh, nobody knows how many people died that night. The most common number given is somewhere between three and four hundred. And these are unarmed people. Totally unarmed people. Yeah. This is a mass demonstration of unarmed students. Um, but of course, with always those rumors, somebody might be armed. Right. Somebody might be doing something. And in Mexico, somebody may have been armed, you know, but they're not starting anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you have is a totally peaceful demonstration. Totally, totally peaceful. Nobody's throwing rocks. Nobody's doing anything except gathering to listen to the student leaders who are on the third story of one of the uh, buildings. And they, because of the open balconies. So what they did was they, the army had already surrounded the place. They started shooting and they simply kept on shooting. Um, You could still see the bullet holes when, you know, even three months later before they changed out the paneling. Um, It was, it was an absolutely extraordinary occurrence. And I mean, literally stands as, you know, el 2 de octubre no se olvida, the 2nd of October will not be forgotten, extraordinarily important in Mexican history, um, and still is. But it was an absolutely horrendous, horrendous event. And then, of course, what they did there was they, whoever of the student leaders they hadn't captured at you know, invading the university and stuff, were captured in Tlatelolco, they were tortured, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Most of them were in jail for two to three years. Um, one of them, one of one friend of mine was sentenced to 26 years and sent to Chile and then brought back. But, um, you know, with all sorts of false accusations. I mean, he was sentenced to 26 years because he was supposed to have murdered somebody, right? Totally, right. totally unarmed. Right. Um, but yeah, so it just it just stands as this horrific, horrific yeah. um, incident. I mean, just totally, totally over the top. Unbelievable, yeah. If the world is as you depict it in this novel, a world of... A struggle and a world of real strife, but a world where we each have a moral responsibility to improve things. What is what end does art serve? What is the purpose of fiction? Oh, it's a big question. It's an wow. Uh, that's one of the big ones, isn't it? Because it, it's it's a really fascinating one for me on a number of levels. Because I'm also a visual artist, right? Right. Um, so, in terms of fiction. I suppose for me, the most important thing in doing it is what you named right at the beginning. It's the bearing of witness to our times or somebody else's times. But it's a bearing of witness to um, the human condition, for want of a better way of putting it. Um, It's got all sorts of other purposes as well. Um, There's a strong purpose in terms of... um, creating community, for want of a better way of putting it, of creating and also that feeling of um, our common humanity. I mean, there's lots of things on that level. And creating beauty, of course, comes in there as well. That's why I was going to go to a contrast in the visual arts that I've always found interesting for me, because I write all sorts of horror comes up in the stuff that I do. 
I mean, it just it just does. And it also in what I've done politically. Mm-hmm. Um, but always when I was doing visual art, what I always came back to was creating harmony. <laughs> right? So so that that sense of that's another side of it, creating the fact that we can create beauty or know what beauty is, um, is also an important function of art. Right. You know, so I've never, I've never, because of course I was active in the late sixties, um, or in the early sixties, really in the States as well. I left the States in 67 and moved to Mexico and I had organized for the war in Vietnam in, um, in the United States. And, you know, Many people by that time in the movement had come to come down to the place where you were not supposed to do anything other than something that was for the movement, right? It was like because people are dying and in fact troops that represent our country, this, this the states at this point, are killing them. Now what are you doing about it, right? And you know, and the, that poem by by Brecht was, you know, of, of incredible importance about talking about how, you know, there's stuff we can't do because we're called to act politically. Um, so beauty goes goes by goes by the wayside. And of course, my feeling was that if we don't create, if we don't do a little bit to create the world we want within our lives, um what what do you have in your revolution for? If you know what I mean, there's a, there's a certain point. There's like, yeah, you know, we're gonna just have a revolution so we can be really bad to each other. And of course, if you look at the worst excesses of any number of movements, that's exactly what happens. You wind up creating horror instead of creating something that you could think of as being better. So it's yeah, all yeah. of that comes comes into you know what what I do. And that sense of possibility, that's the other thing in art, that it creates a sense of possible, of really making a possibly better world, of living inside a sense of the absolute brilliant enormity of just the fact that we're here, you know? Yeah. (laughs) The mystery of it, too. The mystery of it, exactly. That was Jeff Martell in conversation with Sarah Zarrar Murphy about her award-winning Itzel novels. I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin. And wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you a copy of these books. The next installment of Writers' Festival Radio appears on Tuesday, November 17th. Join us for an episode we're calling Yes, It's Systemic, featuring CBC's Ethel Musa in conversation with Eternity Martis and Tessa McWatt. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn. Original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director. And I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>